Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Hello, and welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Charlotte Bond. I'm Megan Lee. And I'm Lucy Hounsom. We often focus on female authors on the show who write cracking female or minority characters, but we're also eager to hear from men who can create a leading lady who is believable and relatable. One such author is Grady Hendrix, who joins us for this episode. From his first book, Horror Store, to his most recent novel, How to Sell a Haunted House, he has placed a female character front and centre of the action. He's here to talk a little bit about his new novel and also about his female characters who quite often go around chewing up the scenery. So thank you for joining us, Grady. Please will you tell us a little bit about yourself and your work to date? Yeah. Hey, thanks for having me. Um, I am very excited to be on a podcast where the accents are making me feel classy. Uh, It's like we're we're in Downton Abbey or something. Um, I am a horror writer. I'm from uh, South Carolina originally. I live in New York now. And um, I am in a lot of psychic agony today because we're moving. And today's the day I have a little office I rent around the corner from our house. And today's the day I had to move out of my office. So this is the last thing I'm going to do in this office where I've been since... 2014. Um, and it's weird. It's weirder than I thought it would be. It's, uh, you know, eight books got written here, three movies, uh, a whole lot of angry emails that were later deleted. Uh, it's, it's weird. As soon as I'm done with this podcast, I'm going to turn out the lights and lock the door and never see this little guy again. I I feel both honored and creeped out. I have to say, (laughs) (laughs) But as a, an author whose most recent novel is How to Sell a Haunted House, I have to ask, you have checked your new house for hauntings, haven't you? You know, it's funny. My new place is in New York. Uh, everyone does steam heat, you know, so you've got these radiators clanging around and it's, you know, February. And so it is really, really weird in the new place because I got to get used to a whole new set of radiator noises that have me like, waking up at three in the morning, terrified, uh, old place. No problem. I've been used to them for 17 years, new place. It's going to take a while. Well, I wish you every happiness and, uh, not so many puppets or <laughs> demons or <laughs> anything horrible. Well, you know, there's a great story. I was just reading about someone who moved into a house. And I think it was in the UK because it was in the 40 and times. Um, and they were saying that when they moved in, they found a small hole in a wall and they were pulling it back to sort of like, you know, take out that piece of drywall and replace it. And someone had left a little doll back there with a note that said, um, I hope you're my new friend. The previous owners stopped playing with me and I got impatient and had to get rid of them. Uh, which I think is such a great thing to do to someone. So I really want to do this to the place we're leaving. Oh my God, yes. (laughs) (laughs) When I was a kid, um, we took up our floorboards for the top of the stairs and just by the fireplace. And I put in a little note. I never thought doing anything creepy. I think I put in like, you know, 10p going, here's what money looks like in our era. And I was so horribly disappointed when my mother renovated the fireplace and dug it up. And she's like, what do you want me to do with it? I'm like, put it back. What I should have said back with like a fake rabbit skull or something. That would have been even better. (laughs) 
Oh, totally. Well, you know, you always see those stories about people who uh, find witch bottles and charms in the walls of their older houses or in the chimneys, which I think is such a great thing. There's actually, um, uh, I actually got them to make us a little secret compartment um, in our place because we I, we put in some bookshelves and I got them to just leave a little bit of it hollow so I can uh, turn it into some kind of spooky shrine or something that no one will find until long after we're dead and buried. Yeah, I went to a really interesting um, exhibition at the Ashmolean a while ago now, but it had like some of these items that it had found, like people hundreds of years have have sort of left behind um, specifically for people to find. And it was really cool and creepy and yeah, weird. Well, it's a cool thing, right? I mean, there is an element of time travel, right? We, you know, when you put that 10 P in the, in the floorboards, it's like you're sending it into the future to people you've never even met yet. And of course it winds up being your mom, which is a bummer, but, um, you know, not nothing against your mom, but I think you wanted to go to strangers. Like there is something very cool about leaving messages in our homes hidden for future tenants. I don't know. I, I find there's something very optimistic, a message in a bodily about that. So we're talking about putting creepy dolls and altars into our houses or other people's houses. But what is it about the haunted house as a as a genre, as a trope, that is such a perpetual draw to horror authors? Why do we keep coming back again and again to this idea? I think it's really, you know, um, who was the famous bank robber when the ass... Yeah. I want to say Willie, it's not Willie Mays. I think that was a baseball player, but I can't remember his name, but he said, someone asked him why he robbed banks. And he said, well, that's where the money is. And I feel like, you know, why are houses haunted? Well, that's where the people are. Um, They're really, as far as I'm aware of, there's really no such thing as a, as a literal real haunted house. People are required for a haunting, right? You have to have an observer. Um, You know, if a ghost says boo in an empty house, does anyone here, does it exist? Um, And I think, you know, when you think about the fact that our houses are so emotionally resonant for us, um, they're where we're dead for eight hours of the day. We go completely unconscious there and and are totally vulnerable. It's where we uh, have or used to have babies and make babies and die and uh, raise our kids and have fights and eat meals and we spend all our time there. And um, there's something very, um, there's, they're just so tied into us. I mean, think about the, the, the shorthand we use for someone absolutely losing everything is homelessness, right? That's sort of, for most of us, the worst thing we can think of happening. We lose our home. Um, You know, someone loses their home in a fire or a flood or financially or economically. Your home is your biggest investment. It's going to cost you the most money over your life. I mean, why wouldn't they be haunted? Uh, So I actually, weirdly, I was listening to an episode of You're Dead to Me Today, which is a great little history podcast I like. Um, Oh, I love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And it was about like the Neolithic period. And it was just about how when they, you know, excavated all these old homes that there were all these houses had bodies buried under them, but not just like buried under them, like they would build kind of built in benches you know to sit on 
around corpses, around skeletons, um, you know, and they would have some wow. houses that had like 62 dead bodies or something just under them. And they actually did DNA comparisons and it wasn't like the people buried there weren't their family members. So they were like, you know, why were they buried there specifically? And like, who were they? And like, why? And, and like properly built into the homes, they had them built into the walls and all sorts. And we just don't know why. Sorry. Yeah. So I was uh, just when you're thinking about like, you know, homes are the places we live, we die, everything like absolutely. And just in Neolithic times, it was also where you built your furniture on top of them? I don't know. It's <laughs> a new meaning to the phrase, home is where the heart is, right? <laughs> well, that's really interesting because when I researched into death in other cultures, one of the things that I noticed over time, um, particularly in Western cultures, we seem to have farmed death out of the house. So it used to be, you know, that you would die at home, but now you die in nursing homes or you die in hospitals. Um, and I wonder if that has affected the, the haunted house trip at all, made it more visceral because we're so unused to having death in the house. I don't know. You know, it's interesting, right? I mean, because also there's, there's a real tr- – there. In, in like Japanese culture and Chinese culture, um, people will have, you know, an altar for the dead, right? They'll have photos of, of family members who passed away in the house. And, um, and that's something we're not too far away from. I mean, you think of a bunch of, you know, all those poshos and big country houses who have portraits of their ancestors and things in there. I mean, that's not too many steps away from that. But Christianity really tried to draw a line between respecting your elders and and what they thought of as worshiping your ancestors. And so you wonder, yeah, if that's sort of something that's gotten lost, right? This cleansing of your house of, of death and this, you know, taking down of a picture of your dead grandparents and instead putting it, you know, where it used to sit over the, the, the breakfast table and now it's in a photo album, which you can put on a shelf and no one has to look at it. Or, uh, I'm not sure how it's affected the Haunted House book, though. You know, the first recorded Haunted House story is by Pliny the Younger. And it's like, it's about from 100 AD. And it is almost indistinguishable from a modern day ghost story, you know, a a house well below market value because the landlord can't get anyone to rent it because there's a ghost of an old man who rattles his chains and bothers everyone. And someone moves in and to, to prove if ghost exists and he sees the ghost and the ghost leads him to a spot where he digs it up and finds his body and gives it a proper burial. I mean, that is, that could have been written. That could be creepy pasta from last month. Um, so I don't know how much they change, but I think you're definitely right. We do outsource death a lot. And I don't know what effect that's had on the fiction, though. It would certainly be something I'd be interested to, to think about. And now that I've mentioned it, I might, I might be reading my fiction with a, a new eye. Um, but of course, I suppose it will also depend on every individual person's experience of death, both in the hospital and in the house. Because um, like you were saying about the haunted house sort of being your stories being a little bit of you and a little bit of somebody else, you'd put some of yourself in there, but not all of it. So, yeah, well, it's also interesting because I mean, there's such a difference between quote unquote real hauntings and then fictional hauntings. Like I worked for many years for a, a parapsychological research organization and um, I, I, I answered the phones and did office 
work. But one of the things that was really interesting to me is one of the guys who worked with us uh, in the in the more in the seventies and eighties, and he was sort of around as an emeritus kind of dude. But he was saying that one of the places he most often got called to do sort of interventions that were haunted were medical record facilities uh, because they were large, understaffed. You know, the, the staff was very small in these vast places. And often the staff would work an alternate schedule. The doctors and the, and the hospital staff would work during the day and they would give all the, you know, they would, they would put in requests for charts to be pulled. And then the nighttime medical records people would be working at night when the hospital was quieter, pulling charts for the doctors to have the next morning. And so that had a lot more to do with them being quote unquote haunted than, you know, oh, the medical records facility was built on an ancient burial ground. I wanted to think about the haunted house as sort of where it started off, well, I know you said it started off with Pliny the Elder, but I was thinking um, a little bit more recent than that. I mean, it was a big, big thing in Victorian times. Um, I mean, I was before I read your um, My Best Friend's Exorcism, I was reading Charlotte Riddell's Fairy Water, you know, mm-hmm. which is, um, great. And it's very, very different to How to Sell a Haunted House. So yes. <laughs> given that you are so well read in both books and so well watched, is that the way you describe it? Of movies? Sure. I wonder what you know what you'd seen as an evolving trope with the haunted house, both in the books, but also within the movies, and how that's presented as well. Well, it's funny, right? I mean, it's I'm not sure how they evolve, uh, like the books. Movies are interesting because movies go through phases, but they change more according, I think, to audience tastes and, and to what the technology can, can be capable of rather than sort of trends in death. Um, and, and one of the things that you see a lot or that I've seen a lot is haunted. So my theory is, and it's my theory and I'll stick by it. Um, no matter how many people tell me it's wrong is that, Social and political anxiety tend to spawn zombies. Um, I mean, you know, you think about um, 9-11, and almost immediately around that time, you get the Walking Dead franchise begins on in comics and moves to television. You get 28 Days Later, which kicked off a huge revival in uh, zombie movies. Um, but economic anxiety... I think gets us haunted houses and there's three big booms in haunted houses. And if you, you will bear with me, my insufferableness here Um, to me, and there's lots of exceptions in places where I'm wrong and and underread. But so the first big boom I see in haunted houses is in the latter half of the 19th century. And that was when um, there were, you know, not only were there a huge number of financial panics and uh, the the British bank failed. I mean, there were so many financial panics and scams and bubbles. Um, but it was also 1848 was the beginning of the spiritualist movement when the Fox sisters uh, began to communicate with the uh, the dead up in uh, upstate New York and Hyattsville. Um, and you also had following shortly after that, the founding of the Society for Psychical Research and then the American Society for Psychical Research to examine mediumship. Um, and you also had in the latter half of the 19th century, this 
these building the property developers who were selling, who were buying up all the land around like London and, and Manchester and, and, and not so much New York, but I think Boston probably and Philly also, um, and, and all these major cities. And they were promising people, um, Oh, you'll live in this countryside with the smell of fresh air and the sound of birds in your ears, only a short commute from the city center. And basically, you know, they invented the suburbs and they were horrible because they were building these houses overnight. The, the average suburban home in London in the 19th century lasted a little under 40 years before it was completely uninhabitable. Um, Charlotte Riddell's uninhabitable house. The house is haunted by the ghost of a nouveau riche property developer who did exactly this. And the house is located in a neighborhood that was an infamous suburb in London at the time because the drains hadn't been built up to code by the developer. So it was flooding constantly. Um, so that was one big boom. And then the economy got a lot better in the beginning of the 20th century. And you notice that in the films, especially in the films uh, between the two wars, and also right afterwards, there was a brief boom after World War II when you had supernatural ghosts again, but largely it was the house is haunted by bank robbers disguised as ghosts or uh, money-hungry dukes disguised as ghosts or, or you know, money-hungry headwaiters disguised as ghosts. Um, and then, really in the mid-20th century, in the boom years of the 50s and 60s, you had very, very little in the way of haunted house movies and books. You had Shirley Jackson's Haunting of Hill House, and you had Richard Matheson's Hell House, and that was almost it of, of any note. But then in the 70s, which I think the UK was the same way, but especially in the States, you had a huge revival in haunted houses because there was, and at the same time, there was an enormous economic crisis. You know, oil prices went up, uh, people were fleeing the cities for the suburbs and buying their first homes. And you had burnt offerings by Robert Marasco, and then you had um, Amityville Horror and all those. And those really were about that's the first time you kind of saw the story of that was so prevalent of. A family buys a house they can't afford, but it's at bargain prices, and the prices are bargain prices because it's haunted, and the family regrets their decision to – and you can look at that a lot of ways, right? You can cut up that cake like, oh, they got above their station and they learned their lesson or however you want to look at it. But then, And then in the 80s, haunted houses sort of chilled out again, and then the next boom you had was in the 2000s, and – in the 2000s, starting around the middle of the decade, on through uh, 2020, you had this enormous boom in paranormal reality television shows. Around the same time as in the States, we had the subprime mortgage crisis. And um, that led to this enormous recession. And, and they really do, when you look at the uh, rise in paranormal reality shows and the uh, foreclosure rate and everything... I mean, they match really closely. So latter half of the 19th century, the 70s, and then the 2000s, those are, to me, the three big eras when there were haunted house booms. And those were all eras that were marked by a lot of economic uncertainty. You're talking about, you know, families who buy a house that they can't really afford, but for bargain prices. And I'm just sitting here thinking about all those one euro houses that they're trying to get rid of all over Europe in like these deserted villages. And I'm like, okay, how about we move from haunted houses to haunted villages? <laughs> oh, God. Well, you know, one of the things that's really interesting is in the 19th century, uh, 
and I forgot who was saying they were reading Charlotte Riddell, but you know, there was a huge complaint that so many of these houses that had been thrown up overnight by property developers would be abandoned because they were so poorly built and they would sit on the middle of the block of a normal block and become the neighborhood quote haunted house. Uh, and there's several newspaper stories and stories in punch in the 19th century of, of writers complaining about all these abandoned haunted houses all over London and the suburbs. As we mentioned before, um, all of your published novels so far have a central female protagonist. Um, Why do you like making your protagonists female? Did you face any particular challenges when trying to write your modern female characters into well-established horror scenarios? Yeah, so the second part of that question, is there a challenge writing women into these sort of horror tropes? Not at all. Um, horror is a woman's genre as far as I'm concerned. I mean, Mary Shelley wrote the first horror novel we all still read for pleasure. I mean, Frankenstein and, um, you know, the Anne Radcliffe was the biggest, you know, horror novelist for, for decades. Um, in the 19th century, there were so many women. I think someone told me that like close to 70% of serialized or, you know, newspaper stories, uh, uh, short stories sold in newspapers and magazines that were, that were supernatural or horror oriented were written by women. I mean, this, and as much as people look at the eighties and say, Oh, well, that was when it got very, you know, boy, which I don't disagree with, you know, the three sort of blockbuster authors of the 80s. I mean, Stephen King, absolutely. And he does cast a big shadow that's hard to get out from under. And he tends to obscure everyone around him. But selling in the 80s, as well as Stephen King, on one side was Anne Rice, and on the other side was V.C. Andrews, um, who were both horror writers or, or gothic writers. And um, and granted, both of them have fallen off the map a little bit. In a way, King hasn't, because he just keeps on writing a book a year, and he stays on brand, whereas Anne Rice goes on to write about the life of Jesus, and V.C. Andrews sadly passed away in, in the 80s. Um, so, and, you know, and to me, the two big horror novels of the 20th century are Shirley Jackson's Haunting of Hill House and Toni, Mor- and Toni Morrison's Beloved. So I really, I'm the freeloader here. I'm the, I'm the, I'm the, the intruder at this party. Um, so I have, I find no difficulty uh, writing this stuff with women. And when you look at the horror boom in the 70s, the books were firmly focused on women, The Exorcist, Rosemary's Baby, The Stepford Wives. I mean, you know, Harvest Home, all these big books were, um, were, were focused on female main characters or were very tied into women's lives uh, or, or women were running things behind the scenes, um, like in Harvest Home, spoiler alert for a book from 1974. Um, but in terms of why I write female characters, um, Man, I don't know. I wish I had a really good answer for that because people ask it. Um, Maybe, I don't know, do I hate men? I'm not sure. Um, I think for a big part of it is that to write a character who feels like a fully formed human being and not just some weird aspect of myself that I'm cosplaying, I need some distance between myself and the character. And an easy way to do that is to have them be a different gender than I am. And and, you know, and I, and I do have three older sisters and, and mostly was raised by my mom and I've been married for 30 something years. So, uh, to, uh, to a woman. And so like, I'm really, I don't know, I've always 
been had close relationships with women. Um, and you know, and one thing I was thinking of is um, I've I've done a lot of work in sort of the Asian film industries and and a lot of work, especially in the Hong Kong film industry. And I'm a big Hong Kong movie fan, uh, going back to the early '90s and you know, they, they really have a lot of roles for women that, you know, we don't get to see them in, in Hollywood so much in, in action movies and goofy comedies and things like that. And, um, and there's, and there's quite a bit of cross-dressing in some of those movies as well. Women playing male characters and things, um, depending on what years movies you're watching. So that might've had an influence. And then I worked for, a theater company, but I guess I still work for, we just haven't done anything in a little while. Um, but starting around 91, when I first moved to New York, and a lot of our performers were, uh, were drag performers. And so for me, that was a real way of seeing gender as a, not that gender always is a performance, but seeing the performative aspects of gender and being hyper aware of that. And, and, you know, and, and so, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, that's, this is, this is me throwing everything at the wall and maybe some of it sticks. Okay, so I am not a big horror reader, unlike Charlotte, <laughs> our resident horror guru, but I have, you know, long been a fan of horror films. And I find it interesting you know, what you were saying. I, I mean, Mary Shelley, absolutely, but see, I tend to see her as the, the science fiction writer because sci-fi is more my, my genre. Sure, sure, yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I get what you're saying. And, you know, I'm a huge Shirley Jackson fan because she's freaking amazing. Um, but I, I find it interesting, you know, when we talk about horror books and, and, you know, women being behind, you know, writing so many of these horror stories and yet the horror films that I grew up watching, they were either like focused on like male main characters or, simply just like cast the women in the stories as, you know, the, the really good virgin or the, the slutty one who has to die or the, you know, they, they were just really stereotyped and not given very much to do. And I find it interesting that you have this, you know, ha like women being really central to the development of the genre in, in books. And yet, sort of this this Hollywood film thing from the 80s, 90s, 2000s, and so on, being quite masculine. I wondered if you just, I don't know, had any thoughts on that? Because you clearly have watched way more horror than I have. Well, no, I'm really curious. Like, what are the movies you're talking about? Because oftentimes it's less about what movies they are, but how we're watching them. And I'm curious which movies like sort of like stand out there as being super masculine to you. I'm thinking about things that I watched as a teenager. So it would be things like Urban Legend and um, uh, like, I don't know, probably really crappy films that like as a teenager, I, I came across <laughs> mostly right, because, right. Like, you know, some boy I fancied was in it. So uh, <laughs> maybe that's on yeah, me. Yeah. <laughs> No, because like, listen, listen, I don't want to say like, oh, you're watching movies wrong, but like at all, because, but I do think like two people can watch the exact same movie and walk away with such a different perception. So, cause for me, I watched a lot of, I wasn't a big slasher fan. And so, um, 
but you know, like watching movies, like I was a big zombie guy. Right. Um, and so, um, but even then, like thinking about like, um, you know, the central movies in there are the Romero, you know, night of the living dead, dawn of the dead and day of the dead. And, you know, night of the living dead, I always was so fascinated by the character of Barbara, uh, Judith O'Day. Um, I don't know if you guys are, remember the movie that as well as I do, which would be obsessively. Um, but she gets attacked early on by a zombie and, and her brother gets killed. And she almost goes catatonic for the rest of the movie. And there's something so... And I think on the one hand, you can look at that performance and say, oh, she just sits there like a lump. But on the other hand, there's something so powerful about her silence to me in that movie. People are, all these people are fighting and arguing. Should we go in the basement? Should we stay up here? Should we make a run for it? We, and they're arguing, pointing at guns. And she is silent and almost stoic throughout and, and doesn't do as she's told. She is literally a non-participant. And then at the end, when the zombies sort of break in, um, she immediately joins in with the other guy who's fighting them off. And, and so like, I can totally see someone watching that and being like, Oh, Judith O'Day, she's a lump on the couch. And I get from it, this woman engaged in this really shocking bit of character behavior. It's almost like she's refusing to participate in the movie. She's refusing to scream and run away. She is literally completely silent. Um, and so, yeah, so, you know, and when I look at stuff like Halloween with, um, you know, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis as uh, the final girl and, and up into Scream and things. And I think you make a good point because I'm probably older than everyone in the world sometimes. Um, but uh, like my slashers were sort of and I wasn't a big slasher fan, but late 70s, early 80s and the 90s ones were coming out when I was, you know, well past university. And I do think the nineties got kind of bad for horror in film. Um, and you did get into, you know, you went from stuff that was, I thought had a badass final girl, like scream where you had, um, Sydney who's so great. And then you get into, I know what you did last summer where it's like, eh, the final girls here are not so great. But one of the things I always thought was really interesting is that there's this received wisdom that kind of horror died in the nineties. And I think, the, the books, you know, lots of publishing lines went bust. The books were a bubble. They were overproduced and they came to a screeching halt. And the books were really, really running down a post-Silence of the Lamb serial killer rabbit hole. And so lots of books were getting produced with really grotesque um, serial killers in them. There was a lot of sexualized violence. There was a lot of sort of really really upsetting misogyny in them. And the books were just getting produced fast and cheap and out of control. And they kind of flared out. And you had the movies that were sort of like, I think they were kind of like going down a dead end. But what replaced them, I think, and which is so great for horror, is television. Because I don't know when they aired in the UK, but in the early 90s, you started getting uh, the X-Files with Gillian Anderson and, and David Duchovny's Fox oh, and yeah. Mulder. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And... Um, and um, you got Buffy, the Vampire Slayer. And it's fun to, for me because a lot of people who are reading horror now, a lot of consumers, a lot of like viewers are kids who grew up in the 90s watching Buffy, watching the X-Files, watching you know, Angel after that. And they bring a whole different set of expectations to them 
horror is full of women. To them, horror doesn't have to be scary. It can be funny or about friendship or romantic or their expectations of horror are so high that I think, you know, it's really done a lot to breathe fresh air into the genre now. Um, you know, you look at people, I hate, I hate the term elevated horror because it kind of like looks down its nose at everything else. But you look at the people who are making that like Ari Oster or Jordan Peele or, you know, any number of filmmakers and they're filmmakers of an age who grew up on Buffy and the X-Files. That was some of their first exposure, which I think is only a good thing. Okay, I think, you know, we have to mention the elephant in the room here, which was you mentioned several times the Final Girls. And of mm. course, you have written a book called The Final Girls Support Group. <laughs> so clearly, you have thoughts on this as a trope. I mean, you know, it, obviously, you will have seen it, but like Cabin in the Woods, for example, mm-hmm. comments quite directly on this as a trope. And, you know, it's, it's one of these things that you know we often talk about that is kind of a bit annoying in a way that you know the women who are allowed to survive are the sweet ones, the virginal ones, the ones that are you know good citizens and doing you know the right thing by what women should be doing and that sort of thing. Um, <laughs> so to me, it's a little bit of a problematic um, trope. But I wondered what your thoughts were on this because I, I suspect you have many. I know. I'm sorry. I I really run it. I get so, I so rarely get to talk about this stuff with people that like when I do, I tend to go on a bit. So I apologize. (laughs) No, no, Um, no, no. That's what you're here for. That's literally your job right now. (laughs) Um, But you know, so it's funny. So, um, a friend of mine, Stephen Graham Jones, uh, he had a Final Girl book come out the same year as Final Girl Support Group. And we actually both started writing our book. We didn't know each other back then in like 2014, 2015. Um, er, and so um, he and I have talked about this a lot. And both of us independently came to the same realization when we were writing our books. Because both of us are authors. We like to read what's in our genre. You know what I mean? If we're writing a vampire book, we both want to read a lot of vampire stuff just to know where the pitfalls are, where the good stuff is, and you know, not to repeat other people. And there's not much final girl slasher fiction. It's really... Um, it's a movie genre. You know, it appeared a bit in the early 70s, but mostly in the late 70s, early 80s. And so for he and I, we were looking, both of us independently of each other, we're looking for literary roots. And what we both did and both came across, and it was amazing when we were like actually talking to each other, and we're like, oh my God, you did that too, which was we went back to fairy tales. Because, you know, you look at Red Riding Hood and it's a young pubescent girl who goes out into the woods somewhere dark and alone and dangerous. She, depending on what version you read, does something she's specifically told not to do, you know, don't go off the path, blah, blah, blah. And when she does, she is confronted by a male, a a monstrous male character, the wolf, um, and basically has to outwit him to survive. Uh, And and again, it depends on which version you read, um, you know, but she has to overcome him with sort of um, resourcefulness and um, uh, sort of not giving up. Even when she's eaten, she still has a fighting chance. Um, And, and, and that's a story 
as a culture, we can't get enough of a woman who confronts a monstrous male figure and has to defeat him by cunning and guile because she's physically outmatched. Um, you know, Bluebeard uh, is is a classic example. Um, you, you, know, you could even make a case that Rumpelstiltskin in some ways, you know, this, this monstrous male figure and uh, who comes for this woman, it's, it's a, it gets a little different there. But you see this over and over and over again in our culture. Um, Mina Harker in Dracula is, I think, the first final girl. And I'm going to get a little like rhapsodic here, but you look at Mina and um, you've got all these dudes with their Bowie knives and their big plans and their blood transfusions. And Mina is the one who is the biggest threat to Dracula. And everything and 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 at first you look at her and she seems like such a little domestic cupcake right she's learned all the train schedules so she can help her husband travel where he needs to go she learned shorthand so she can help her husband take notes she learned uh, uh to to use recording devices to help her husband but every one of those things gets turned into a weapon she uses to hunt down dracula who the big motivating factor in the book is he kills her friend. Yes, he comes after Jonathan, but more than that, he kills Lucy. That's why they're going after him. He killed Lucy, not that he almost killed uh, Jonathan. And everything that is done to Mina, everything that Dracula does to stop her, he tries to kill her husband. It just makes her braver. He kills her friend. It just makes her angrier. He bites her and gives her his vampiric contagion and then can use her to spy on all these, uh, on all the men and their plans. And she boomerangs that and uses that to psychically spy back on him. Mina Harker to me is this original final girl. And to me, and I know what you're saying about the problems, the final girl chapter character. And, and I don't, I don't disagree there. There. I'm not sure the virgin thing I think is, yes, it's there in some cases. It's not in some others, um, which is interesting how that plays in. And, and, um, but, you know, to me, the final girls I love because they're the ones who arrive fully weaponized, right? There's Buffy or there's someone like Xena or, you know, these characters, these women, these female warriors who show up to kick ass, but the people I love, the final girls I grew up on, the ones like Mina Harker are the ones um, from Texas Chainsaw Massacre or Friday the 13th or Halloween or the first nightmare. They're just high school girls. They're just women. They're not badasses. They're not stronger. They're not braver. In some cases, they're like, they, they're, they're actually the least interesting character on screen. But what they have is a resourcefulness. They refuse to stop. They refuse to lie down and die. They run further. They keep fighting. When Little Red Riding Hood is inside the wolf's stomach, she gets cut out and then finds a way to kill the wolf. When Jamie Lee Curtis is in, you know, escaping from Michael Myers and Halloween, he, she is outside with him. She gets inside. He gets inside. She gets upstairs. He gets upstairs. She gets in the closet. He gets in the closet. She gets out of there. She just will not quit. And to me, that's, that's what, and I get it. Like everyone, everyone can have their own final girl. I'm not saying no one can have a different interpretation, but my interpretation is these women with this, almost this big sister energy to me who run, they don't 
stop. They don't give up. They never say it's lost. They keep going. And that is such a, they, they're such a totem in my life that, um, that, yeah, that, that's, that's my sort of little <laughs> quasi religious inspirational final girl ode. It feels very much like, nevertheless, she persisted. Yeah, I hadn't even, <laughs> I hadn't even put that together. But yeah, I mean, that is how I look at them, the ones I love, you know? When you were talking about Mina and Red Riding Hood, you talk about ingenuity and competence and just keep going. But one of the things I found when I read the Final Girl Support Group, that your characters, especially Lynette, who is front and centre, they're flawed, they're paranoid, they're deeply scarred, and they kind of are competent, but also overwhelmed as well. They, they sound a lot more real, a lot more scared, a lot more, like you say, the everyday kind of things than you would think of with Red Riding Hood and Mina, who have always kind of been portrayed as a little bit up there. You look at them and you go, heroin, done. Whereas <laughs> and, and, and her friends, and I'm like, I really don't know if they're going to make it to the end. So how did you get from, you know, Mina Harker, competent, going through and, you know, persisting, and we've got Jamie Lee Curtis, and then we come to Lynette and her friends who are who who get to the end and who do persist, but by the skin of their teeth, it has to be said. Right. Yeah. So um there there's a so there's two things. And one is, and I, you know, it's funny, I'm gonna, I'm gonna really possibly stick my foot in it here. But so the first thing is where I feel pretty good about it saying this is that um there's such a difference between books and movies. Um, and one of the big ones is that movies are so external, right? Y you can't show someone thinking in a movie. That I don't even know what that looks like. That's boring. You can show them making a face and you assume they're thinking. You can show them doing something based on their thoughts, but you can't so show someone thinking. Movies, uh, books, on the other hand, are so relentlessly internal. You're always inside someone's point of view. And so, you know, you can do nothing. I mean, good God. I mean, uh, you know, Ulysses is, is just completely internal. Um, and there's so many books like that. Johnny Got His Gun, all these books. So to go from the external, external um, final girls of movies to the ones in a book, I had to bring them a lot more down to earth. Um, and also these are final girls who aren't facing their first challenge. They're facing their second, you know, they've been through this once they're, they've been through it twice. They're bruised and battered and, and moved on into their lives. And so they're not teenagers anymore. And I think all of us, you know, when we're teenagers looking back on it as embarrassing as it is, that's when you're a bit golden. You're a little luckier. You're a little, you're a little faster. You're a little cuter you're a little smarter you're a little more daring um you have less to lose and so you risk it more often um so yeah so i definitely want to make them middle-aged people who are um who've been through this once and and i wanted to to get them a little more real and grounded um because i felt like that would be where you know that's where you have to get to be in a book but the other thing is so there was a big gender thing going on with Lynette and I don't really talk about it much because I don't want to sound like a prat, but, um, so I always thought that like, and, and you know, it's one of those things you think when you grow up on horror movies, you're like, Oh, if that happened to me, you know, if Michael Myers came after me. 
Well, I'd like, you know, learn how to shoot and I'd learn karate and, you know, I would weaponize my house and he'd never get in there again. I'd kick his ass. I could, you know, Freddy Krueger, I'd learn how to do lucid dreaming and I'd kick his ass. And, you know, when you see that wish fulfillment in some of these movies, Nightmare on Elm Street 4 with the like, dream karate fight and, you know, the new Halloween movie with Jamie Lee Curtis all weaponized and badass. And I always was like, God, that would be me. I would never get rooked again. I, I would be prepared. But one of the things I've learned over my life is you're never prepared. You know, um, it all falls apart. And I wanted it. I, and so Lynette became very much me. This idea that I'm this badass with my guns and my Krav Maga and my house full of locks and traps. And the second the rubber meets the road, it all goes to shit. Um, you know, your best intentions don't equal real life. And it's interesting. Um, you know, it, it's, and so I felt always like that sort of response was so, such a guy response. I'm going to fight this thing. And I really wanted to make it in this book so that um, every time Lynette pulled a gun, she made things worse for herself. That every time Lynette fought, things got worse. And I wanted to get to a point where it got much more real to me where, you know, the best thing, I mean, besides staying alive, the best thing the final girls do in that book is they rescue Michelle and let her not die in hospice, which is something she doesn't want to do. They don't fight anyone. They, they save her. Um, to some extent, as best they can, they give her a better death than she was having, surrounded by people who love her, um, or at least who know her as a person and not just as a patient. And I wanted Lynette, when she uh, takes down the killer at the end, not to punch or kick, to, to basically, she just wraps her arms around them and holds on and doesn't let go. And that the real triumph is not in defeating this killer but as in the brave act is reaching out to them afterwards and refusing to let them be lost. Um, and that to me, I, I wanted to get at something that felt less macho and aggressive and, Hey, let's all fight. And more like, is there another path here that might be, and I hate to say this cause I hate gendering instinct like this, but might be a little more feminine here. Can we, can we reach out? Can we save? Can we rescue? Can we communicate? Can we, you know, de disempower this, this horrible, toxic cycle. So anyways, that, and I may sound like an absolute chump saying all this, but that was what I was shooting for. Oh no. I mean, I love the bit with Michelle and the hospice. That was just, it was so powerful because it was so unexpected and you see sort of noble and meaningful deaths happen all the time. And I loved how you managed to kind of balance that, but at the same time, make it, very human and very flawed. Oh, it was just, yeah, it was not what oh, I thought. Oh, thanks. It was really good. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny. There was a, there was this thing about, so Boston over here, and this is a bit of a digression. So wrote me back in if you need to. Um, they have a huge, huge homeless medical, a set of homeless medical services. And it's been run for a long time by this doctor. And when he started doing this, it started out as just a simple walk-in clinic. And he went there to just do a little volunteer work as part of his residency. And this was in the 80s. And it had been started and run by nurses, all, all female nurses. And he said, 
that, you know, he showed up there going, I'm going to tell, you know, figure out what's wrong with people and save them and lift them up off the streets and I'll diagnose it. And the nurses said, you're not going to talk to anyone. What you're going to do is wash feet. And that's what he did. And that was the thing they did. It was really powerful. They'd wash homeless people's feet and baxitrace and a disinfectant uh, and trim their toenails. And, and that's what they did. And he said, you know, the act of taking my cues from these nurses as a doctor, which is kind of goes against the grain, and then putting myself in the position of someone who is listening, not talking to these people, and someone who is kneeling at their feet and washing their feet, and the Christian metaphors were not lost on him, and just being of service and taking those cues from these nurses, he said, just changed my life tremendously. And, and I just feel like that's... You know, I don't know. And it, I, I wanted to get a little of that into Final Girls, you know, with Michelle, that this act of saving her from a hospice and letting her die with people she knows is as powerful as defeating the killer. Well, I have to say that it's usually at this point where I summarize what we've talked about, but I'm not sure that I can because we have gone from so many wonderful things. <laughs> Sorry. I know it's a bit all over the place. I apologize. <laughs> no, it's been wonderful. I mean, it's not very often I end with regret, but I really regret that we're not sitting in a pub with another round of drinks where I can go, come on, Grady, let's talk about this and uh, let's talk into the early hours. And I, I have to say that I think a podcast dedicated to Grady Hendrick's and another person where they give two different views of the same film would be an absolute hit and I would absolutely listen to that so uh, when you've moved house and settled down maybe that's uh, something for you to think about <laughs> yeah hey listen if, if any of y'all want to be that other person I'm game and I'll, I'll talk less next time oh no I don't know but maybe we'll have more drinks and more pub next time oh, yeah <laughs> But thank you so much for joining us, Grady. It's been an utter blast and it's been really great. And um, I highly recommend How to Sell a Haunted House. And I really hope that your house isn't haunted. Thanks for having me. And I kind of hope my house is. Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond and Lucy Hounsom. Please help us spread the word. Subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.